Hello, you're listening to another episode of Talking About the Passion. I'm Thomas Irwin. This is a podcast where I interview different independent musicians and showcase their music. As for myself, I'm a singer-songwriter and producer who goes by Niagara Moon. You can look up more about my own music at niagaramoonmusic.com. For episode number 15, we have Zach Bergman, a.k.a. Sourgout. Zach is an experimental electronic music maker from Vancouver, Canada. He's been producing tracks for years using various aliases, but as of 2016, Sourgout has focused on creating incidental music for virtual spaces. Those in the know might call it Vaporwave. In my interview with Zach, we go deep into the definition of Vaporwave and other recent internet spawn genres, and a whole lot else. Before that, though, we're going to hear a track off of his most recent album, Escape. This is called Mimasroom.jp. Thank you. 
we first met how many years ago now? I would say seven. Seven. It's been quite a while. Yeah. I was at a hotel in Albany. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember that. For a uh, alternative schooling conference? Yeah. I remember, because you were there with a group called Purple Thistle. Mm-hmm. That was a kind of alternative school community deal yeah. out in Vancouver. And you also, you showed us all a music video you had made. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And that was so... Was that the thing for the that local guy, C.R. Avery? I think so, yeah. It was, a, it was a local guy who was like at an ice rink or something. Yeah, because I remember that winter we got hired on by, the Thistle got hired on by him to direct and work on that as a community effort, right? Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, wow. Bringing you back, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, I haven't seen that video in at least six years. <laughs> yeah. Have you uh, made many music videos since? Not really. I haven't actually been working in film really at all <laughs> in any real way since about 2011-2012. I think I stopped and just moved directly towards working on music. How long have you been making music? Um, well, I've been like making music since I was quite young, but as far as like doing it as something that I with a goal in mind since about sometime around 2013. Mm -hmm. And then a year after that, I started going to music school. So I'm my third year right now. Wow. Doing composition, yeah. Wow, so you got one more year left uh, studying composition? Um, actually, no, I'm leaving the community college I'm doing that at right now, planning on going to um, Simon Fraser University for communications. Oh, very cool. Which has a music aspect to it. Yeah. So kind of the sound, um, sound ecology group there so Barry Truex and all them so awesome it's kind of an interesting yeah so you are born and raised in Vancouver Canada yeah more or less yeah all in right in the city so never really went out of it how do you find the music scene there um it's rough <laughs> rough yeah it's not ideal not ideal no there's a lot of good music but um as far as venues and as far as like having things work out. It's tough to get people out, and it's um, also tough to keep a venue running. Oh. A lot of weird laws around that. I mean, that's the case all around nowadays. So the underground venues where you can actually play are pretty... And when they are running legally or whatever, it's even harder to get shows at. So Kind of sorry to hear that. It's not all bad. Like, there is a really good scene, but... Mm -hmm. Like so much stuff nowadays, it's all becoming more internet-based. Right. Like there are shows, but there's not really a... The physical location doesn't matter as much no, as it used to. not as much. Yeah. So uh, growing up, what was your relationship to music? How did you become interested in it? Well, my extended family and my, my dad um, all play music. So like there's a lot of music performance and playing around me. Oh, so it was in the family. Yeah, so there's kind of always sort of like a this thing of like it was cool for me to pick up an instrument when I was young. Mm -hmm. So I, I ended up picking up piano when I was around eight, just kind of dabbling in it. And I kind of didn't stop dabbling in it. I never got too serious about it. But how I was able to get into music school was mainly because I had all those years of learning theory and all that stuff. So, so on the side, I ended up picking up things like guitar and banjo. And now I've moved... I've moved almost entirely over to electronics after spending mm -hmm. a lot of time at music school and trying to do classical music kind of repertoire, like writing stuff for orchestral um, ensembles and string quartets and 
stuff like that. So you spent your time, you know, learning the piano and learning formal theory. Yeah. Classical music and all that. But what pushed you to go into the electronic music world? It, so it was sort of like alongside playing music. I, when I was around, I think, 14, 15 years old, I discovered noise music. And I discovered that whole realm of expression. And I started dabbling with it at the Purple Thistle. So I, you know, I picked up from people around me who were kind of doing experimental sound-based music. And over time, it just became trying to do that. was It was easier to do it on a computer yeah. than it was to buy a bunch of hardware, which was the other choice. And I couldn't really afford that. So when I first started going to music school, it was like a blend of doing written music for ensembles and these like noise gems. Hmm. And then what grew out of that was sort of moving away from that into trying to do the electroacoustic thing. So I was really trying to explore the textures and all of that kind of stuff, granular synthesis and various methods of sound and space with my teacher. So that was a big thing for like the first two-ish years. When you first started producing your own music on the computer, it was more or less like noise music? Yeah. I mean, there was a, it was noise music and ambient music, a lot of ambient music, because it was kind of easy to wrap my head around. And I could just get like mm-hmm. an idea and just sort of run with it for hours, which was just kind of soothing for me. I mean, I tried to dabble in everything. So like I was big into industrial music, too. So I was trying to incorporate that, those aspects into it as well, and just trying to fool around. And then that, uh, that eventually evolved into the kind of music you make now, which is, uh, how would you describe it? what you're producing these days? Well, the, the music I'm producing these days, I mean, most people would categorize most of the stuff I'm re- releasing as part of the, the vapor scene, like vaporwave, hard vapor, and all that stuff. I got into that because around a little over a year ago, I knew about all that that scene vaguely, but I wasn't really interested in it. Yeah. I didn't really know how I felt about sampling other people's music and playing with ideas of copyright like that. I didn't have the same relationship with it I have now. And then sometime in early, early 2016, a friend turned me on to One O Tricks Point Never and James Ferraro. Those two artists kind of changed how I saw music production because at that time I was becoming pretty jaded with the ambient and electroacoustic scene in Vancouver. I was becoming pretty jaded with this kind of this really tedious, you know, these people who are like, oh, it's not worthwhile if you haven't spent like a year working on it. It's very austere. Very, yeah. Not very playful. Not very playful. And so hearing like albums like Garden of the Lead and Farside Virtual from James Ferraro and then eventually getting into Vaporwave, just there's something sort of like playful about it, yet still very like thematic and iconic to it. Something that really interests me because I started realizing that the majority of works that I was into that I'd been working on all kind of related to theme. So I was really into having a narrative element. So I was really into the idea of the, like the album or the condensed collection of tracks that build sort of a narrative Mm -hmm. to them. And that was kind of hard to do in the scene that was dedicated to just sound design. Yeah. It's not really as much based around like individual tracks. Yeah. And throughout my life, I've been huge into the aesthetic of cyberpunk. So finding a genre of music that sounds like it it could have been made up by someone like Stevenson or Gibson was perfect for me. Hmm. Like, I mean, in a lot of ways, you read those old 80s cyberpunk novels and they predicted Vaporwave. There's like quotes about people actively listening to elevator music and slow death. Like, it's like, 
finding that it actually exists, that there is a cyberpunk music outside of just thumping Atari Teenage Riot house music. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is kind of like taking elevator music and adding like a punk element to it or something. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm familiar with those artists you mentioned, especially like One of Tricks Point Never. I find mm -hmm. his productions pretty interesting. Um, like I have a moderate understanding of Vaporwave myself, but uh, maybe a lot of people listening to this, especially if they're older, uh, they might not be as mm -hmm. familiar. But um, like, how, how would you describe Vaporwave as a genre? Now that it's changed so much since around 2014, I would describe it, I think one of the musicians described it this way, or I can summarize as a decentralized aesthetic-based form of ambient music that ties to either a narrative or being incidental music for spaces, usually with the idea of virtual spaces. So like in the case of Mall Soft, it creates a virtual sense of being in a mall. Or in the case of um, Hard Vapor, it creates this like really gritty underground club vibe to it that is very dirty and harsh and bad drugs and that whole scene. And then like the dream punk stuff that artists like 2814 and Hong Kong Express and Telepath are doing is much more like kind of a, this ethereal sort of urban nighttime energy. So it's all about like creating this idea of like a virtual location, a lot of times like a fantasy of some distant location. A lot of times there's like this distant alien future in a huge focus on like futurism is a big thing. Futurism and transhumanism, I think. Another guy I had on this podcast described it as being high in, inside of a G Sega Genesis video game. Yeah, that <laughs> works too. His own understanding of it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because yeah, one of the ways of creating this future sense is almost, and this like really awkward way of looking at it is playing with retro futuristic ideas, playing with like the tacky qualities of 80s new age culture and like the dawn of the internet and like the, the fascination that everyone had with technology in the 80s and 90s is sort of a looking back on it and seeing how like tacky it is it's almost but seeing musicians almost embrace that and like playing with that in a contemporary sense is kind of interesting I guess. Vaporwave recently has sort of moved away from the not entirely but from that kind of retro futurist aesthetic just because it started becoming conflated with genres such as synthwave and chillwave and it didn't really want to because its focus was always much more broad. It was much more based around theme and ambience than it was based around what you're sampling. So, for example, if you look at like the biggest label in the genre, Dream Catalog, you'll see like a whole plethora of albums that are all com sound completely different. That yet they have a coherent quality to them that's very its own, mm -hmm. despite the fact that. There's everything from like industrial house music on there to like just pure ambient music to like really glitchy experimental plunder phonics kind of in the style of John Oswald to like classic style vaporwave or at least that's what they used to do more. So it's sort of interesting like they so they're, they've changed the title and they're calling it just vapor because they realize that it's it's much more broad than just this idea of like sampling the 80s with the elevator music and turning it into a and just turning it into this kind of like aesthetic, which was really important from like 2011 to 2014. But it's kind of, it's still there, but it's not as prevalent in the scene. So people are doing, trying to do more or, or in just looking at it differently. So they can still do that, but it's just about being open to all the possibilities. Mm -hmm. I see the vapor scene is sort of similar to how the noise scene was in the late 90s. It's kind of like this, there is a, there is kind of an aesthetic, but every album's completely different and there's not really like a noise sound 
even though most people would think of it as that. Most people would go into it and go, oh, the haters, Mertzbau, that kind of stuff. And then, but then if they like look into it, you'll find artists like, you'll find like folk music on a vaporwave label. You'll find like weird, like pop music just kind of hidden inside of it. It's more unified around an approach or yeah, a belief rather than a certain sound. Mm-hmm. And that belief is not entirely, but really based around sort of like this uh, creating a virtual character, almost a virtual identity, uh, uh, playing with anonymity. So even though like a lot of artists, like we know their identity, they'll have multiple pseudonyms that they don't ever really mention their identity. Like, for example, like people who know me know I'm Sourgout, but when people look at the page, they don't see Zach Bergman listed anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's sort of creating it, making it feel kind of distant, alien almost. So Vaporwave as a genre, I mean, that got really popular really quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have any theories as to why that happened? It was kind of an interesting, it's the sort of thing like, you see it once and it just seems like a silly joke, but then it just keeps popping mm-hmm. up and gaining more and more traction. Yeah, early on, I mean, when it got huge the way it did, it was it it worked the same way memes work in a lot of ways, where it like it tickled a certain sensibility among a certain crowd of people through its aesthetic and through what it was referencing. And there was an epoch of kids and young people on the internet who just gravitated towards it. Yeah, people who grew up on computers. Yeah and sort of were born in the 90s or something like that, kind of weren't around in the time that it's referencing. So they don't really get bothered by the music. Like, I remember, like, when I was first trying to figure out the scene, I would play some of the music for, like, my parents who were <laughs> teens in the 80s. And they, would, they would be like, they'd be like, I get it, but at the same time, I didn't like this music then, and I don't like it now. And there's sort of, like, in order to appreciate it, I think there needs to be kind of, like, a, a detachment from from reference being able to look at it as something distant not exactly something that you remember but what i think is interesting is that vaporwave boomed that way became this huge internet sensation and then there was a bunch of articles from vice and like the aesthetics were getting picked up by mtv and stuff like that and then after that happened like as is going to happen everyone just assumed the genre was dead that it was just one of those short-lived, fun little things like Witch House or stuff like that, where the only people who are going to live on are the people who, you know, maybe started the genre, like in the case of Vaporwave, One or Tricks Point Never, and in the case of Witch House, Picture Plane is still doing great, but the artists who kind of made it a scene aren't really, a, they're still around, but people don't care <laughs> anymore in the same way. It was kind of a fad. Yeah, it's, yeah, just like the Young Lean thing and Chill Wave and Sea Punk and all that stuff. Sea um, Punk. <laughs> yeah, little Tumblr aesthetics and the fad, fads that just start and then die after about a year or two. But what was interesting about Vaporwave, and this is what I think is super fascinating about it, was after it was claimed dead, two artists, Hong Kong Express and Telepath, got together and started a small label called Dream Catalog, which I referenced before, and they dropped two little albums on it that were Vaporwave, yet had this deep focus on narrative. And this was when the, mm-hmm. the this new concept I'm talking about, where there's a focus on narrative started. And people gravitated towards that because there was a whole bunch of people who were kind of like, I really like Vaporwave, I really like this scene, but I feel kind of weird being into it because it's dead and, you know, people need to follow fads and stuff like that. And then, and also, like, it's getting tired. We've all heard Macintosh Plus. We've all heard that. We all know what it sounds like. And then discovering this new way of exploring it 
where people are releasing kind of the same music but presenting it in a different way. Like artists like Groceries releasing an album called Yes, We're Open that literally just sounds like music playing in a grocery store for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like That's like the whole album. Like that kind of concept is what they started. And with that, I think what they did was they kind of made it impossible for it ever to die because now it's not really a solidified genre. In order for it to die, people would have to completely lose interest in the scene. Right. And I haven't seen that happen yet. I've seen big names in the genre say it's dead and delete their labels and stop the whole thing. But then there's a whole influx of new people starting up labels that get just as big because there's still a huge need for it. Something people want to hear. Yeah. And want to make too, which I think is one of the interesting things about it, which kind of brings it back to punk and noise and stuff like that, is that you hear it and you go, I can do that. Right, anyone can do it. It doesn't sound hard if you have, like, you're not necessarily going to make something that sounds good, but you can try. It's easy to approach, like punk music. It's really easy to approach, yeah. So with that, there's always that discourse. Like, it's rare that there's people who are just fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that leads me to uh, my next question. Like, when you're in the process of, producing a vaporwave track what does that look like like obviously the music is mostly built off of samples but i mean how, do, how does a track come together in your experience a lot of times i'll hear like something something obscure because most of the po- more popular old old music or music that i think would work doesn't all have to be old like some of it can be new some of it can be really old as long as it sounds like it can be warped and twisted in a way that would be interesting so there's a big uh, there's a large amount of people who, of course, will sample music that a lot of people don't think about, like not 80s pop music, but let's say in the scene of Future Funk, which was more of like this upbeat funk version of Vaporwave, there's a whole lot of Japanese funk music getting sampled because there's just... Yeah, what's with that? There's just there's just so much of it. <laughs> and it just ended up becoming kind of like a... They just, it, they just went fucking gangbusters on it. I mean, half these tracks I hear, I'm like, oh, I heard that at a Kyoto convenience store one time. Exactly, yeah. All this old pop music from, yeah, something about Japan. Yeah, I know. And it's, and that one, especially the old pop music, is because we, everyone felt like, oh, well, we've, we've gone through everything from the States, Canada, and Europe. (laughs) Where where to next? Right, you already covered North America and Europe, so I guess it's next on the list. Yeah, and there was so, just a huge amount. And, of course, there's also the... It's such a big one of those cultures and aesthetics and everything. Japanese culture is so big on the internet in that way. So, And why do you think that is? I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's not really something that I that you think about so much, but the fact it just it's so huge. Like, I guess it just looks cool. Again, coming back to the, the aesthetic. Yeah, uh, there's the looking cool. And then there's also just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely, there is a fine line in Vaporwave, for sure, that I pay, try to pay attention to between kind of like a this, this attempt at globalization and appropriation, which there's sort of like this, a lot of people walk that line pretty thin. It can get weird, for sure. It's just trying to keep that discussion happening, though, because it is a global genre now. Like, it's, it's not all people from the States. The original idea was that it was all white, suburban teens in the states in canada but then it's like oh wait no this is like really huge in brazil 
it turns out it's real it's actually quite big in japan now like there's any country with an internet connection yeah there's a whole lot of japanese vaporwave artists um some really great ones um like infinity frequencies is fantastic a lot of stuff from the philippines a lot of stuff from uh the middle east all through europe and africa like it's <laughs> like all down there too so it's sort of uh it's really that was its intention i guess when people were starting it was kind of taking from multiple different cultural identities and then just sort of blending them into this thing that make it feel like it's not tied to any specific location that's tied to kind of like an internet almost that it is an internet genre in the truest sense you can't go it started in la you know like most genres you can go like oh trap well that's like you know southern states it's got like its thing it's there it's around now but it's there (laughs) well this was one of the first to be like it's nowhere and everywhere at once. Well, do you think part of the reason for that is it's the kind of music that's not meant to be performed? Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think it can be. Are there people who are performing it? I think it can be DJed in a sense. Like, I think a lot of people perform it, but really just play their tracks and present it as part of like a DJ set, which I think right. makes more sense than trying to perform the actual genre, <laughs> which would be sort of redundant. Have you uh, DJed it yourself? A couple times, yeah, uh, just off my laptop. The hard vapor stuff I could actually perform, and I guess that was the idea with that genre, was they wanted to make something that... it's it, Hard vapor was intended to be the antithesis to vaporwave, in a sense, so it was meant to be like, fuck everything that vaporwave's about, let's go let's go the exact other way, and now it's just a subgenre of vapor. <laughs> which So what does hard vapor sound like in comparison to vaporwave? Um, if vaporwave is... This kind of dreamy, um, distant, futuristic scape. Then Hard Vapor is a dirty old Gabber tape from like Bulgaria <laughs> that you found somewhere that's kind of broken. So it's more aggressive. Much more aggressive, darker. darker this kind of club vibe, this really thump, thump, thump vibe. Hmm. And because of that becoming an antithesis in this, that, and that started in early 2016, up till now, the genre has become completely diversified now. There's like, as long as it's electronic and there's a specific theme to it, you can be doing anything. Because before that, there was still kind of like this focus on it needed to be sort of dreamy and ambient. And now the hard vapor thing came in and, went, and now everyone's like, oh, it can be anything. Hmm. Yeah, so for the first time ever, people are like, singing over their vaporwave tracks or playing instruments and it's just i don't it's gonna go all the way around and become a form of pop music or something yeah i hope not (laughs) (laughs) i hope enough people keep the sample thing going that it kind of keeps it because the whole entire genre is about uh decontextualization so if it got recontextualized that'd be kind of strange so you currently go by sour gout yeah that that's a name i was given by someone at the Purple Thistle when I was 15 years old and wanted to start a band. And they listed me a bunch of band names and someone said, Sour Gout, that's gross and funny. And then I was like, okay, I won't use that. And then I created a noise track and I'm like, huh, I need a, I need a title. Uh, let's use this because it's kind of gross, yet it also has a vibe to it. Yeah, it's kind of confrontational imagery, isn't it? it? It's confrontational imagery while still rolling off the tongue in such a way that it can kind of float by without people really thinking about what it means. It's short. In a sense, it's short enough and it can kind of fit any sound in a sense. Like it doesn't have to be harsh and disgusting necessarily, which is (laughs) 
sort of how I looked at it. So I just sort of placed it on there and then it kind of stuck. The artwork in your releases, the images you use, they're very uh, digital, colorful, but Mm -hmm. they're also sort of off, like in a mysterious, sort of creepy way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like a very focused aesthetic. Yeah, I use a lot of glitch art. Yeah, so images have an important role in your music as well? Yeah, and I think they have an important role in internet music as a whole now, because there's sort of like this, you present something with an image, and then that image and the title of the record and the title of the tracks contribute to the feeling of the album almost just as much as the music itself now. Right, it's part of the old thing with uh, album covers on vinyl records. Exactly, yeah. So like you you look at the cover and you go, ooh, that makes me feel this way. And then you see the title, the album, like the tracks and how they're designed. And then you feel a certain way and then you listen to it and then you try to relate them all and then try to figure out your own personal idea of what it's going for. Yeah, I love the one for your new release, uh, Escape. Yeah. What what anime is that from? It's like a drawing of Tokyo at night? Yeah, it was um, just a, a cityscape taken from Perfect Blue. Perfect Blue, that's a great movie. Yeah, fantastic film. <laughs> um, that was actually how I started that album was I was laying in my room, and I have, I have, I'm deeply interested in the idea of, of 21st century isolation, escapism, and obsessive behavior, because I do it myself, and... I think we all do it to a point and it's becoming such a part of our culture. And I kind of like troubling the idea that it's a negative thing or a positive thing. It's sort of, it's complex. And I was listening to the soundtrack to Perfect Blue because I really loved it. And then I heard like one of the Cham tracks on it. And I was like, man, that one little line right there would make a great loop. And then I just started cutting it and then made a whole album uh, kind of from that not from that loop, but from that's what started me working on the album. That's the movie with uh, Perfect Blue features like that girl pop group and they have yeah. that song. So you sampled that song. Yeah. <laughs> They're like theme song. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought I had heard it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of tying to like what I was doing at the time. I was laying around. I mean, I was in school, but I was making a lot of music, but also, you know, watching a lot of anime at the time and just doing a lot of that stuff. And it kind of started contributing to my escapist mentality and um because of that i kind of yeah thought that it that soundtracks from those shows could would fit the sort of theme i was going for in a sense it was sort of like me wanting to try to make something as standardly vapor as possible and see if i see if i could get a tape release on one of the little paperweight labels and it worked so yeah so how did you release your your latest album you had a tape cassette release I sent it to a label in Miami called Sudswap that I discovered and they seemed interesting and they picked it up and did all the work. (laughs) That's kind of how the labels work in the scene too, which I think find really nice is you send them a demo like on SoundCloud, just a private stream. And if they like it, they get back to you and go, great, put the waves on Dropbox or Drive or something like that, send it our way. And then they download it and then they have the waves and then they do everything and do a release hype it and do everything for you. Yeah, when you say do everything, you mean they promote the album? And they promote the album, they make, they, they design the J cards, they buy the tapes, they do everything like that way. And then all you have to do is have the music and like an album cover or some sort of vague idea. Sort of a, I like that kind of way of looking at things. So there's like no contract, there's no, and it, the music's still mine, right? Like it's not like they're... They're not buying the rights or something? No, not at all. They don't own the rights to it at all. So I can still have the music running on mine. Band camp and like yeah. I wanted to ask if I wanted to do my own release of it 
in the future I could easily reissue it without ever even talking to them. What are your plans for Sour Gout in the future in terms of uh, new releases and DJ sets or any of that sort of stuff? Well, I have uh, uh, my next album uh, is being released on the Hard Vapor label Antifer. So after doing that album Escape, I decided to try my hand at the Hard Vapor thing because I promised myself I would just try to whip up something. And I think that's what's kind of fun about there being so many sub-subgenres of this genre is that it sort of like sets up these identities that you can play with. Like you can kind of go, oh, I'm going to make a Hard Vapor album. I'm going to just do it. And then I'm going to make a this album. I'm going to make something that sounds like this. I'm going to make something that follows this. I'm going to make something synth-based and just kind of... It's an interesting way of learning in a sense because it forces you to like mm-hmm. get out of your comfort zone a bit and try different sounds while still re- trying to remain yourself. So Antifer is the label that was started by this artist called Boss X, who was the he was the person who kind of created this genre hard vapor. So yeah, that should be out sometime in May uh, May fifteenth. So you just released an album, but you're about to release another album yeah. in like a couple months. Yep. <laughs> and that's actually pretty common. Um, I plan on and as far as future beyond that, I plan on continuing to make these little things. Because how I sort of look at it is I will look at like an album as a whole composition in a sense. So for me, it's not some like as a as a large form, kind of how I would look at doing like a symphony or something like that. So for me, it's more like what well, I don't make individual tracks usually and just leave them as individual tracks. I'll like make a track and be like, that is going to be sort of the centerpiece for a whole theme. Interesting. Yeah, that's quite different than the mindset of putting out singles mm-hmm. yeah I, I i really like it this way personally because it automatically allows your album to be cohesive like it almost forces it to like you have to make it cohesive or else it's just a collection of tracks it's a good challenge mm-hmm. but it also in a way because you can because of the limitations it makes it almost easier to finish albums especially with the kind of quick way hmm. that i work now fluency and ableton and stuff like that it makes it really quite quick as long as i have the idea it won't take me months and months and months to finish something. It'll take probably a couple of weeks or, or so of yeah. occasionally working on it. I mean, is the music composed of anything beyond samples, or do you have it revolve around a sample, but then you have like software instruments and stuff? Yeah, sometimes. Uh, it really depends on what I'm going for. I'll use a lot of effects, but for, in the case of like the hard vapor thing, that's all software. Oh. That's all like drum machines and software things, and the occasional like film sample or something. Like the occasional little samples, but overall it's pretty much a much harsher thing. And I'm also, yeah, like I'm really into references too, and like referencing things I'm interested in. So like in the case of this new Hard Vapor album and probably future releases, if I were going to do the genre, I'm really into the genre of body horror. So like cinema, like kind of like Cronenberg uh, stuff. Videodrome. Like Videodrome and all that. <laughs> yeah, and all that nasty stuff. And, but one of my favorite films is Tetsuo the Iron Man. Oh uh, yeah, that's a cult classic. Sukamoto film. Um, so this album, this album is sort of uh, finally I'm able to make an album that is inspired by that. I've always wanted to. I've like for years I've been like, man, I want to, I want to, I want to make like a little electronic album that's inspired by that, and I want it to be like super gross, <laughs> industrial, and rusty. Okay, but Escape is your perfect blue album. Yeah, more or less. And so, like in the past, I've also done other little things that were featured that were based around. Um, more moods like i have like one short little release that was based around like this sense of like a library 
this kind of a virtual library space. I also have like one that was inspired by some of my music theory classes where it was sort of meant to be kind of this virtual weird take on early 20th century Vienna pre-World War One. It's an interesting concept. Inspired by the serialists of the time, Schoenberg and uh, Bayburn and those um, composers. So I used for this whole album, it was called Vienna 2516, and it was released on the label Lost Angles. That was like the first release I did, kind of under this vaporwave style. Um, and the whole idea was that I played with samples, but a lot of it was me building little synth lines and drum lines using techniques of tone rows with inversions and retro like retrogrades and building blocks and using kind of like this algorithmic modernist approach to composition very conceptual stuff so very heady yeah i'm really into concept that one was a little heady (laughs) for sure like people liked it because it sounded nice but overall like i don't think the theme really picked up because it's kind of not it's not easy to grasp you don't look at it and go "Mm, that feels nice yeah (laughs) so it's more like oh that's confusing and stressful (laughs) and i have to think so Well, thanks very much for joining me today. This is an interesting discussion. Yeah, totally. Yeah, thanks for having me. So there you have it. That was my conversation with Zach. Very well-spoken guy. He's just a fountain of information. I could see him being a professor of vaporwave someday, if that ever becomes a thing. Anyway, yeah, this podcast had a very top 40 radio pop theme going on last week, so I figured this would be an interesting contrast to that. If you guys listening have been uh, following the podcast for a while, you're probably noticing the genres here are all over the map. I like to keep it eclectic. The theme song for Talking About the Passion is the Niagara Moon song Pantheon Bar off my recent album Eating Peaches. And the artwork for both this podcast and the album was done by Miranda Harmon. If you like the podcast um, and want to support it in any way, you can subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can also leave a rating or a review on iTunes. That would be very nice, very helpful. If you want to send me an email, you can send that on over to tatppodcast at gmail.com. Up now, we have another song from the Sour Gout album Escape. This one's called Commute. See you next week. <laughs>